Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 251 The Communication Gap. In this episode, we conclude our conversation with Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod by exploring why it's important for students and teachers to meet in the middle of communication gaps. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Here you've grown up in a world where you need directions, you just consult your iPhone and that's it. Right. And I grew up in a world where you actually told people how to get to your place because that was the only way they were going to get there. Okay, this is a good analogy. I want to loop it back to what we were saying about the generational differences because it's easy for me to see what you're saying, like certain technologies enhance abilities. And then if those suddenly disappeared or I chose not to have them, it would be very difficult for me to get around not without so the iPhone, for me. but not as difficult for you. Um <laughs> And that makes perfect sense. Just like probably you, you had grandparents, like if they had to like do subsistence farming or live off the land or, you know, what I can see, like even a few generations before there were probably skills that got lost in your generation. Absolutely. Like, so in that sense, there's like all of those things are, they enhance certain abilities, but then we lose other capacities, but we lose them pretty universally. So like most people aren't, unless they ha- like are really interested in how to like, find north <laughs> they don't learn that they don't learn how to to navigate that way so okay bring it back to this conversation of uh practice and teachers my orientation toward technology has been sort of that i continue to find ways that it, it, it's more useful at doing certain things than the the options that were presented before so i just look at the contemplative world and my own practice and i start wondering well what are the ways that technology could aid certain aspects of this well, and this enhance is, them? This is very interesting. And that yeah, conversation I, doesn't happen. This much. is very interesting, Vince, uh, because I, I just described how I found that um, word processing technology enhanced my ability to translate. Yes. So I'd like to throw a question out here to you. Can you give me an example or two about how modern technology enhances your ability in, to practice, to meditate, or you know any aspect of Dharma practice? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, I could probably give a couple uh, easy ones, and then maybe there's some that will be a little harder to think up. But um, one has been Skype video has made a huge difference in my ability to stay connected with peers and teachers in a kind of real way when we don't live near each other and to kind of talk about practice, to share notes, to get new instructions, to, you know, just to basically have those, those oral conversations, those, the, you know, the thing that you mentioned before, those real interactions. Uh, and it, in such a way that it feels like we're on Skype video now, it, it almost feels like I'm in your living room hanging out with you, but n- not quite, but it's close enough that that's, that's enhanced things for me quite a bit. And then the other thing has been around social media, Twitter, Facebook, and then some sort of like forum places where I've gotten some value in connecting with other practitioners and seeing them 
talk about their practice, like on Twitter, there's a hashtag called open practice and there's a whole site openpractice.me where people will share a little bit of like a little ephemera from their practice. Like this morning I did noting meditation and some open awareness practice and then they'll tag it open practice. And there's a way in which for me that's sort of socially reinforces this uh, commitment to practice and it also creates a sort of interesting network where we're kind of checking in on each other indirectly. Uh, and I found that really useful. So let's take both of those, uh, yeah. one, but one at a time. Cool. Uh, let's, let's take Skype, because I've, I've had some experience with Skype too. Yeah. And I, I agree with you, particularly, well, when you had plain old telephones and then you just had audio on the internet, which is basically the same as plain old telephones. Yep. It's possible to give instruction and to receive instruction, but you don't have the body language. Um, you do have the, the tone. And I'm going to refer back to uh, some research that was done, and this is used by the uh, air traffic controller tra uh, training in Canada. Um, this is where I found these statistics, but I'm not quite sure where they originated. I think it's 55% of communication is through body language. 37% is through the tone of voice. And the remaining 8% is the actual words. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So it's almost 50-50 audio-video. Close. Well, yeah, yes. But, 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 but the, the amount of information in the words is only 8%. It's very small. And yet, so when you when you move to some, let, let's take email, because email is just pure words. Right, right, like books. And, 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 and you don't even have the character of the handwriting there. Right. Okay. So you're only getting 8% of the information in, a, in possible communication. Yes. Now, with telephone, you're getting about 50% as you observed. And then with Skype, well, it seemed to be getting... Uh, you know, maybe ninety percent. I don't sure. It's still, as you say, it's different from being in the same room. Yeah. So, if you go back to my earlier point there, uh, that technology enhances something, and we we don't notice how other things fall away. Right. Uh, when we get used to relating by Skype, we may lose touch with the other aspects of communication that only take place when you're in the same room. Right, right, right. And, and I do find, even though I have Skype conversations with friends, and, and it's really helpful to see their facial expressions and their movements and so forth. And when I've done meditation instruction and practice instruction, it's really helpful to see. And I think it's helpful for the person to see my uh, body language and so forth. It's still not the same as being in the same room. Of course, yeah. Or, or going on a hike. Or going on a hike, yeah. Uh, where there's, there's, there's something different in, in sharing that physical um, space uh, you have. Yes. So how important that is? Well, in, in some cases, I think it's crucially important for spiritual instruction. And I think in other cases, it probably isn't crucially important. That is, the, the necessary information can be conveyed through, uh, through that. And so I don't take the attitude of saying Skype is bad and physical presence is good. I'm saying 
Skype is useful here, but may not be sufficient and things. And there are people I've said, look, I don't want to have this conversation with you over Skype. We have to wait until we actually get together. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I think that what's important here is that, is that people learn to differentiate what technologies are, are workable in what situations and not take a blanket approach. And I find this with respect to email, where a lot of people spend, send emails when a phone call is the appropriate form of communication and would work better. Totally, totally. And then how do you, how do you see that playing out with, um, like my, my sort of contention being that people that are in this older generation, from my point of view, do take more of a blanket approach and don't necessarily parse some of these things out, which makes it, uh, just as a practical point, it makes it difficult, for instance, to stay in touch with my older teachers if I don't live near them. That's like a, a, something I've, I've dealt with on a practical level. Well, <laughs> so you make an appointment to see someone. Uh, suppose you make an appointment uh, to see someone in New York. When do you expect that person to show up? At the time that we've made the appointment, usually. Yeah. Well, here's how it worked in Tibet. You made an appointment to meet someone in Lhasa. Yeah. You'd wait a week to see if they showed up or not. Okay. <laughs> A little different sense of time or just because it's difficult to get around? Both. Ah, okay. Both. Uh, because it was difficult to get around, you had a different sense of time. Okay. And also because you didn't have watches in the same way. you watch Time is another technology, even though we take it for granted now. Uh, time is existing universally at the same time at all places on the same planet. It's something that was only developed in the 17th century. Yeah. With the... With the, with the development of the watch. So, so here's, here are teachers that you have that you would like to communicate with, and they balk at uh, using Skype. Uh, okay, uh, I, I, I guess you have to have a conversation with them and introduce them to Skype. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and well, this is helpful because it's, it's, it's highlighting for me that there's certain areas that, like, you know, I can I can try to build a bridge uh, to something that, and and try to convince someone this could be useful. But then, you know, there's always a kind of meeting halfway that happens. See, I never, my own teacher never spoke on the phone, to my knowledge. Yeah. His secretary, his assistant, would speak on the phone and would would do the back and forth if necessary. But he didn't know what to do with the phone. So now that's an extreme case for, for our world, and most people know what to do with phones now. But always there is this aspect of people adapting to technology, and some people do and some people don't. Yes. Um, and I, I can certainly um, sympathize and relate that, uh, you know, you'd like to keep in touch with teachers, and they choose not to use Skype. Uh, I know some people who, to this day, do not um, do not use email. So you yep. can't, yeah. And frustrating? Yeah. There's a couple of people who I know that I would like to have some communication with and I have to, I have to go through the whole phone thing. I, I can't just send them an email. Yes. And this is something that's going to happen in every generation. I mean, uh-huh. You wait 40 years or 20 years, and there are going to be people who are going to use communications, and you're going to sit there and say, how does this work? (laughs) (laughs) How does this 3D hologram thing work? (laughs) 
I mean, I just get in here and then I'm suddenly there. I don't trust this. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so how does one work with that gap then? Like, how did, did you just say, okay, you know, my teacher is not going to use the phone. That's just the way it is. And so in order to be in relationship with them, I'm going to, you know, travel or write letters or, you know, do whatever they, they are, they do do. That, that's exactly right. Because, mm. and here we go back to the point that I was talking about in the interaction. Uh, I was talking about the spoken interaction, but you're, you're taking it into a larger context here, which I think is very interesting. You have a, a teacher grows up in their world with certain technologies and certain ways of communicating. You grow up in your world with other technologies and other ways of communicating. You have to actually meet and you have to meet where both of you can meet. Absolutely, uh, you know, and and so that's uh, that's part of you stepping out of your world of technology into the teacher's world of not so much technology or yes. not particular technologies, and some or possibly none, of, of vice versa. But it, it just depends. Uh, but but that that's the challenge of communication in today's world. Okay, and do do you see do you feel like that's an, an enriching process of the both stepping a little bit outside their normal ways of doing did you feel like there's something valuable in that that's an interesting question i felt mostly it's frustrating but then it's also can be enriching like when i've had people say you know i'd rather not skype like i'd rather we go on a hike or rather we go you know bringing me a little outside of my normal way of doing things and i go oh this is really nice actually yeah, here I think you're running into a particular bias I have, that I, I want the communication. Uh, and so when uh, I first met my teacher, uh, I realized that uh, he only spoke Tibetan, and him being 68 at that point, it was extremely unlikely that he was going to learn English. So I just learned Tibetan because I wanted the direct communication. Okay, see, that's more ex- <laughs> that's more extreme than me trying to convince someone to get on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same thing. It's another technology. True, true. Yeah. And so if you want the communication, then you're going to step out of the world for the communication. Yes. Okay, interesting. I, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That seems to be the crucial point is the communication itself. I so, think so. And I, and I didn't, I mean, was it enriching? Yes, it was tremendously enriching for me to learn Tibetan. I had to learn to think a whole different way. Uh-huh. Because every language has its own way of thinking. That's one of the things I discovered. Mm. So, but I didn't learn it to enrich myself. I learned it to communicate, and I was enriched in the process. Okay. Got it. So, maybe... Can we go to a couple other areas? I think maybe this will be yeah. helpful because there might be some patterns that start emerging here. Yeah. Okay, well, let, let's talk about the social media one, which I found very, very interesting. Okay. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference in Seattle, and the chief scientist, I think he was retired, of, of um, Palo Alto Park, uh, gave this extraordinary talk about the um, infrastructure for the 21st century, which is all information technology, of course. And uh, one of the small points in it was a law firm back east, which uh, had hired these young uh, attorneys, uh, fresh out of law school, etc., and uh, gave them 
the usual research on cases to do. And they were a little puzzled because these young associates would produce very high quality research in very short periods of time. Mm -hmm. Now this was a mixed blessing for the law firm. The high quality research uh, was very good, but because they were doing it in such a short time, they were reducing the number of billable hours. Right, right. And what they were doing was when they were given a research case, they would just go on Twitter or uh, various other social media, uh, perhaps Facebook, but I think it was mainly Twitter, and saying, I've got a case along these lines. Anybody know any, any relevant cases? And they would, just, they would crowdsource it out to their colleagues at, at law school and who were all over things like that. And they would get back stuff very, very quickly. So instead of plowing through casebooks and casebooks, they would just make use of the internet this way and uh, and they were able to get very good quality research done in very short periods of time. Yeah, so, they tap, tapped into the hive mind sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so here you're giving this example of open practice where yes. it allows a, a kind of connection which in, in my generation we, we could do, but we, we would do it by getting together physically. And, yes. and talking about stuff. Yes. Um, and uh, and that was the only way we could do it. Yes. Because uh, even conference calls, there weren't a lot of those in those days. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, conference calls, a big pain to set up anyway, uh, even today. But uh, just being able to uh, communicate asynchronously, not depend, it didn't have to be in the same time, just send the stuff out and get stuff back. That was a possibility that didn't exist before. And uh, I think it's very interesting that you find this uh, uh, supportive in your practice. And I'd like to hear more about how you find that supportive. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's one element that seems to be related to just the fact that a lot of these people um, share really similar either practices or interests or sets of interest or, or sort of we, weird combinations of interests. Like they're interested in technology and of certain types of meditation and certain kind of ways of approaching their practice that it feels like, oh, this is a real peer. You know, this is someone that I really feel gets how I'm looking at things. And because of that, um, when I share what I'm doing with them and they respond, there's something more meaningful in that as a peer-to-peer connection that wouldn't have been possible if we were geographically based. So, so that seems to be part of it is just that the net is cast so much wider on those communications that the number of really, really, really high-impact, meaningful relationships seem to be, there seem to be a, a more number of those, um, at least for me. And, and then I find that incredibly uh, enriching. Well, this is very interesting uh, because I think what you're referring here to, or you're alluding to, possibly, is how the internet is uh, leading to um, to the emergence of tribes. Yes, exactly. I mean, in some ways, I, I think of Buddhist geeks as a kind of tribe in in, uh, in yeah, that way. That's fair. Yeah. Now. Uh, a friend of mine, whom you you know, Jeremy Hunter, yes, uh, sent me a paper recently, on um, which was a, a very deep look 
at how uh, tribal structures affect international negotiations. Hmm. Okay, that's that's fascinating and super esoteric. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, but the way that international negotiations, uh, this person was offering a a, a perspective uh, was um, association and. Uh, can't remember the other one, uh, and I won't take the time to look it up. But there were two dynamics that operate with respect to tribes. One had to do with identity, but it wasn't the term identity, and the other had to do with association, affiliation, and association. No, it wasn't affiliation, association. But anyway, uh, because when you were describing this, um, I, I, there are two. I had two uh, very different thoughts come to mind. Mm. One was that uh, on the one hand, yeah, I mean. We have our own experience, and it's such a relief to find out that we're not crazy. Right. Uh, other people have similar experiences or similar approaches or similar views, and we're not crazy. Yes. Uh, uh, because, uh, and, and so that I'm having this difficulty with practice, say, or this difficulty with uh, this thing, and other people are having the same kind of thing, and we can sit down and dis- discuss those and uh, maybe get some clarity about it. Yes. So that's the way I think that technology enhances. Yes. Um, the, the other thought that I had is that it increases the likelihood that you're only going to hang out with people who see things similar to you. So there's, a, there's the danger, possibly, of only associating with people who are very similar in outlook. Yeah, there's like a kind of potential for insularity. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm wondering how you play with that. Well, I I was thinking about that too, um, and I have thought about that issue before. And what I've found though is that people seem to change enough in these tribes that I will constantly, like one of my friends, for instance, will tweet about something that is not normal for them, and I never heard them talk about, and it's outside of the context of most of the stuff we're interested in. So there's enough. Usually, there's enough difference that I do get exposed to other perspectives and I do end up, you know, having disagreements and it's not like we're like carbon copies of each other. So I found there's, there's enough dynamic tension where it doesn't start feeling like this is like the, the, the club where everyone agrees on the same thing. Um, but at the same time, I, I wonder if that's true, uh, also that, that there is a certain amount of insularity that, that you can't avoid with those technologies that they just sort of, they, they design it in such a way that it does do that. Um, well, we, that we seems that true. Google, we, we know that Google is now feeding us news based on our internet search patterns. So right. Google is actually re- uh, reinforcing this insularity. But yes. I, I, want, I want to go in a slightly different direction. And, okay, good. Uh, that is one of the... I, I think this is probably the most difficult thing I had, a uh, difficult learning point in my life. And that was that other people have fundamentally different ways of seeing and experiencing the world. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, maybe I'm uh, a bit of an anomaly here, but that was just that was just so hard for me to understand. Mm. And, 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 and I had to learn that lesson over and over and over again and, until it finally sunk in. And I know that... 
I don't know whether it's a generational thing here or not, but I know that when I was training teachers, I, I, the way that I set up my teacher training program, that was one of the things I wanted to make sure that they learned. And one of the ways that I did this was to put them into triads between sessions so that they had to interact with each other quite deeply. And in the beginning, it was just murder because there they all had been at the same session with me. And when they just sat down to discuss it, they found that being three people had been at a different session. Because he, now Ken didn't say that. He said this, and, and, and they just couldn't believe how differently they heard and experienced the same thing. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. it was a tremendously valuable experience uh, for them uh, to, to learn that. And I know it's been very valuable for me. Uh, and now, when I'm teaching somebody or when I'm in my business consulting, one of the things that I really try to do is understand how is this person experiencing the world? Because only then do I have any idea of how to communicate with them. Mm, okay, that's interesting. That's really interesting. That seems like um, that seems like a really useful thing. I wouldn't put that under the the traditional rubric of Buddhist training at all. It doesn't seem like that's like a traditional part of Buddhism. Maybe it is. I could be wrong, but um, isn't that what's happening in the teacher-student relationship? I mean, good. Yeah, good question. I'm I'm not sure because in my experience with a lot of teachers, what I've been trying to do is assimilate their way of looking at the world. Like I've been trying to replicate their. Oh understanding. I, I wouldn't say that I do that so much now, but that's often how I see that. That's often how I've seen the teacher student relationship constructed. Like you said in the beginning, the teacher has, has something that you don't, and you want to learn that you don't want to learn, you know, how to understand how they think about the world, which is different than you. At least that's not how I've had it seen it framed. Well, yeah, and that, that, this I think is really important because you remind me of a student that I had, Actually, there's two students uh, that I'm thinking of very explicitly. Um, but one of them said to me, uh, I'm not sure that I want to end up like you, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> wow, nice. <laughs> and I said, well, I damn well hope you don't. <laughs> so you didn't take that as a, as a, as a diss? But, no, no, I mean, he, he was... He said it very seriously, mm. but and and, and I, I I I said no, that's not what this is about at all. And so I think this point that you're you're ra- you've raised here is really important. Mm-hmm. The point isn't to become like your teacher. The teacher knows something you don't know, uh, or is able to meet situations in a way that you can't or, you know, whatever, however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the point is, is to, so there's something in, when we're in the student role, something that is moving us, uh, that, that we're inspired by or that we want, but we don't necessarily get that by emulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you're reminding me of, of something else. There's a, a teacher I, I never met, um, a Japanese teacher, called Uchiyama. And one of my students gave me a very small pamphlet printed in Japan, which is a series of comments by Uchiyama's teacher with commentary by Uchiyama himself. And one of them is titled, 
Zazen is useless. <laughs> nice. And what Uchiyama says here is that when he was a young a student of uh, Sawaki Roshi, that was his teacher, uh, he said to Sawaki Roshi, if I practice for 25 or 30 years, do you think I can be a bit more like you? Hmm. And Sawaki Roshi said to him, and apparently he had a big voice, he said, no, Zazen is useless. It doesn't change anything. <laughs> <laughs> and many years later, the way Uchiyama expressed this, and I've just found this very useful, is that if you're a rose, be a rose. If you're a violet, be a violet. If you're a violet, don't try to be a rose. And if you're a rose, don't try to be a violet. Mm. And I think this is really important in the teacher-student relationship. Uh, I think that the perv in the spiritual realm, you're, you're learning how to be who you actually are. Mm-hmm. And I think the teacher really, at least the way that I approach it, isn't trying to produce a carbon copy, but is really looking at the student and, and trying to help them find who they really are. Okay, okay. And and yet, you, I mean, you'd have to, uh, have to at least concede that, that not all teachers are doing that. Well, I can't speak for all teachers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least I, I can speak for some teachers that I've, I've known yeah. that that aren't looking for that. They're yeah. looking for you to talk about what you know in a way that they understand because they've experienced it in a similar way. And then there's a sort of way of confirming, you know, what you know, like, like in some ways that's what lineage often seems to be understood as. Well, I, I hear what you're saying though. And I like yeah, that actually. Well, a lot. I, I, I'm just, uh, I learned a lot uh, from my, my teacher. No question. And he really wanted us to follow a certain path. Mm-hmm. And that path for him was monastic ordination. And he, he uh, in the men's retreat, in the first retreat, there were only two of us who weren't monks. And he did everything short of ordering us to take ordination <laughs> to get us to go in that direction. Uh, I didn't, uh, nor did the other person, uh, because I knew that that wasn't my path. Mm-hmm. And here, you here you you get into something that's really important about the teacher-student relationship. Uh, and I, I I don't think there are any easy answers to it. The student need as as they come to know themselves through their practice has to respect what their path is mm. and, uh, and and however that is. And not always, as you've pointed out, will the teacher be able to appreciate that. Right, right, right. So there's a, and, yeah. And, and there can be a tremendous pain. I, I've worked with many students who, who were found themselves in that position that they knew where they needed to go, but their teachers couldn't see it. Okay. Uh, and there's huge pain in that. It's it's really very very difficult. And on the other hand, I know other students uh, who they knew where they go, and their teachers could see it. Right. And it was just uh, even though it was very very different from what the teacher thought was 
thought, thought they should do or even what the teacher felt was best for them. But, but the teachers could respect them. And that was so important. And, and as I say, I don't think there are any easy answers in this area. Uh, th- this is part of it because you have two humans relating to each other. Yes, yes. And this seems to be like the, the, the area where relationships either continue to like develop and flourish or they people part ways oftentimes. Yeah. But, th- but this is not a new problem. Uh, yeah, yeah. I-, I go back to Atisha, who's an 11th century teacher in India before he came to Tibet. And when he was young, he was a red-hot yogi. And he studied with a teacher and learned a lot from him. And then he realized that he needed to go in a different direction. He went to his teacher and said, I need to go in a different direction. His teacher was really upset with him and told him he couldn't do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the teacher just said, I'm sorry. I thank you for everything I received from you and left. <laughs> Interesting. So, and I'm, I, I wanted to tie this back to the to like the broader topic because I think it's it's really cool. I'm seeing some connections in what you're saying with the generational differences because I have to figure out my path, and and part of my path includes navigating new dimensions, cultural dimensions, and technological dimensions that that um, my teachers didn't have to and don't engage with in the same way, and so part of what I'm finding useful in what you're saying is there can be a way in which those teachers can respect that and encourage me without necessarily having to know or have been down those same tracks themselves. Yes. And and that comes because of the human relationship that develops between you as they come, they come to respect your own sense of your path and in the beginning, you know, you don't know what you're doing. None of us did in the spiritual path. So we, we are very much dependent. But as, as, as we grow in experience and understanding, yes. then uh, the teacher ex- extends uh, understanding uh, to us. Uh, and, and in a little sense, in a bit here, it's, it's a bit like parenting as well. But what I, I think what's really important here is, is that always this is a relationship between two people and if one requires the other to be completely their way whether it's the teacher or the student the relationship breaks down you actually have to meet Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. 
You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.